Do you know what it means to humble brag? It's sort of, how, how many of you are familiar with the term humble bragging, right? I won't ask you how many of you do it. We're going to talk about this for a little bit. Two words that appear com- to completely contradict each other. Humility and bragging don't seem to go together. But humble, humble bragging is an attempt to appear modest or even self-critical while also letting everyone else know how awesome you are. So let's think about it for a second. Some examples. Instead of coming right out and boasting, did you know I got a super nice new car? You say, I didn't know that when I bought a sports car, the police would pull me over all the time. It's such a terrible burden. Or, you know, life got so much more stressful when we bought that second home at the beach. Oh, such a terrible thing. Uh, I'm a fisherman, so fishermen do this. One of the famous fisherman humble brags is, my arm is so sore today from reeling in that monster fish, right? The humble brag, it's kind of pathetic, isn't it? Uh, Why do we do it? And research actually tells us that we come off more authentic if we just come right out and say it, if we just come out and say that we are proud of something that we've done. And uh, it shows that other people encounter our humble bragging as exactly what it is, a false attempt at humility. It's not very authentic. Why do we do it? Maybe we do it because we are taught that we shouldn't be too conceited. We shouldn't be too up on our own successes, that we shouldn't celebrate our own strengths. But as I look at the book of Colossians, as I think about the reality of what I've just described in us and also as it happened then, I think think there's something more at play, something deeper that we're going to talk about today. I think that a lot of us feel at the core of us inadequate. That we, we just kind of can't help ourselves feeling like we need to fill this void with some kind of comment, some kind of achievement, some kind of sense that we are enough, and we just it just comes out. It kind of comes out sideways, that we have something to prove. And humble bragging is the perfect combo. You get to fill that void somehow and have the appearance of humility at the same time. And religious people, the reason why I think we should talk about it is I think religious people can take this to a whole new level. That, in fact, in religion, in our faith, it's especially prone to this unique combination of of, of sensing that we're inadequate and yet needing to appear like we are humble. So think about how we might do this from a faith perspective, from a religious perspective perspective. People do it when they're trying to talk about how they've been successful. All praise to Jesus and my hard work. I am just so blessed. I just closed another million dollar deal. God is good. God has been so good to me. You know, it just has, I mean, it's not that it's not true, but it but it sometimes has the, the sense of authenticity. Or maybe we just nonchalantly drop in conversation, something about our spiritual disciplines. Like, you know, the other morning when I was praying for an hour, as I do every day, God really spoke to me. Or I really didn't get that scripture until I read the Bible the 32nd time. That's when it finally became clear. 
or I just wear myself out serving these days, just going from one place to another, doing good everywhere I can go. It is just, just my life. None of those things are bad, and that's actually really important as we engage our scripture today. None of those things are necessarily bad, it, but our engagement with our spiritual life, the spiritual practices, our faith, our engagement with it, why we do what we do does ultimately matter. And if we come at religion from a place of inadequacy, eventually it's going to show. Eventually it's going to actually not help us that much. Eventually it has the potential to do harm to other people. I think religion is especially prone to this humble bragging because it reveals just how inadequate we can feel. And there are times when we can barely hide our religious inadequacy, maybe even worse. There have been plenty of times when we have been told that we are missing a critical piece of the puzzle, and that's the context of Colossians. This religious brand of humble bragging gives us a helpful context of what is going on behind the whole writing of the book. And we're, we're six weeks in, we're at the core of what's really going on as Colossians describes the cosmic enoughness of Christ, well, it, it's becoming clear that there are people who are calling for something less than that, a trust in something less than that. Colossians was written in response to other religious people who are boasting about how they have it figured out, how they have a certain angle on God, a certain angle on faith, that, and that the Colossians don't have it. Paul calls this twice in the passage today, false humility, false humility. The sense of we have it figured out and we're helping you because you clearly don't have it together yet. So listen to how the message paraphrase talks about these verses because we'll get the context a little better. It's a little bit complicated because in the early church, you had lots of religious influences. It's not unlike today, but in the early church, there, was, there were people who had a Jewish background, there were people who had a Greek background, and there were different ways of thought, uh, th thinking and, and schools of thought that were coming together. And so there's some pressure to, to figure it out. And Paul responds to that pressure in Colossians 2.16 in the message version. So don't put up with anyone pressuring you. So we get this sense. In fact, we've heard in the, in the previous uh, points in the chapter early on that there are some fine-sounding arguments at play and that there is a hollow and deceptive philosophy perhaps underneath the surface. And here we get this clear sense that that is coming as pressure to these people. So don't put up with anyone pressuring you in the details of diet, worship services, or holy days. This is probably referring to perhaps the Jewish side of the argument, those Jewish practices that came into the early church. Again, nothing wrong with them, but the point of engagement with them is really important. So Sabbath, Jesus himself engaged with the, the Sabbath and, uh, and, and really confronted the Pharisees uh, at every point. In fact, telling them it, it wasn't that Man was made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. The point of engagement with the practice is really important. Or what we eat or what we drink became just a real point of religious doctrine. And Jesus would also confront that or how we engage with those religious festivals, part of the Jewish tradition. So here's some of the content of the humble bragging. We don't do those things. 
because in some sense we feel better about ourselves by not doing them. We do these things because it makes us feel holy in some way. And Paul says those are, those are just a shadow of the fuller thing. Those, that way of engaging religion is, 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 is just a shadow of the fuller thing, which is Christ. The next couple of verses probably refer to the Greek background folks in the audience and their own set of humble brags. Don't tolerate people who try to run your life. Again, there is a point of pressure from the outside ordering you to bow and, and scrape, insisting that you join their obsession with angels so that you might seek out visions. Now that sounds pretty strange, doesn't it? But the background would be that there was a way of thinking that actually continues, uh, has continued through the church to this day, that we somehow need to uh, tamp down our bodies, tamp down the physical world, kind of leave this world behind and rise above up into the heavens. So that worship of angels and the bowing and scraping of our bodies refers to a more extreme form of asceticism. This has continued throughout. Maybe you were taught this, that our bodies are ultimately bad and heaven is ultimately, ultimately good. And so what we need to do is leave our bodies behind somehow, like, like deny ourselves fully in an extreme way so that we can get up into the, the heavens. I think the context here is when people have, you know, when people just sound super spiritual, like they can talk all the talk, they've got all the right words, and it's like floating up here, and they can talk about cosmic forces, or maybe they're kind of focused on angels, in, as in this context, or maybe, maybe it's a hyper-focus on the end times, or maybe they just can talk the talk, but there is behind it just this hard edge, this lack of it just coming back down to the ground in love, a sense of gratitude and awe and wonder. They have it all figured out, but in a sense, it's kind of like they don't, and you can't really put a finger on it. And I think that's what Paul's speaking to. Maybe you understand that. Maybe you know someone who is super spiritual in a way that just doesn't appear authentic or if there's a hyper-focus on spiritual things that somehow doesn't equate with the story of Jesus, which is incarnational love, not kind of leaving us and going to heaven, but just the opposite, the love of Christ coming in fullness to, to the earth. Any religious doctrine that doesn't get us engaged in the messiness with people and love may sound spiritual, but it isn't Jesus. It is the way of Jesus. Think about it this way. Christ didn't brag about his ability to escape to heaven. He simply came to bring God's fullness to earth. Well, this is a pretty harsh critique of that way. Uh, Colossians 2 is a very harsh critique of that pressure coming from the outside saying, we're doing it better than you. You don't have it all figured out yet. And uh, so this is, again, the message version of what we've already heard. Uh, it says, they're a lot of hot air. Well, that's pretty blunt, isn't it? That's all they are. They're completely out of touch. But the source of life, which is Christ, who put us together in one piece, the one in whom all things hold together, Colossians says, whose very breath and blood flow through us. You think that might be a good starting point. That sense of Christ in us, as we've said, as Colossians says, that is the hope of glory. He is the head and we are the body. We grow up healthy in God only as he nourishes us. You hear the sufficiency of Christ in these words. So then if 
with Christ, you've put all that puffed up and childish religion behind you. Why do you let yourselves be bullied by it? Don't touch this. Don't taste that. Don't go near this. I don't think Paul is saying that ethics are bad. But why are we doing what we're doing? It does matter. So don't be bullied by people who are telling you that you don't have enough figured out yet. Such things sound impressive if said in a deep enough voice. They even give the illusion of being pious and humble and austere. But they're just another way of showing off. Making yourself look important. What is it about religion that draws us into that need to look and feel important? Why is religion so prone to one group of people acting like they are better than another because of something that they do or something that they believe or something that they have figured out? Colossians speaks to this dynamic of somehow having some kind of special knowledge that makes us feel important and how that is just the wrong direction. You know the joke about the man who has just arrived in heaven, and St. Peter, of course, is how these jokes go. St. Peter's always there doing something, and so St. Peter is giving him the grand tour of heaven, and as they pass a room, there's, uh, the, the man hears some noise, and he says, who's that? And St. Peter says, well, that's the, and fill in the blank, it's one religious denomination. And it could be any of us, by the way. And as they passed the room, he said, yeah, in fact, we have to be really quiet when we go by that room because they think they're the only ones here. Colossians is a challenge to live out of the cosmic enoughness of Jesus when our starting point can very easily be the not enoughness of people, ourselves or others. Well, of course we're not enough. But Colossians would remind us that that's the starting point when we realize that Christ is enough. It changes our point of engagement. It changes the starting point and the ending point and everything in between. And that sense of overconfidence is actually the thing to be worried about. Jesus refers to this in Luke 18. And this is a story that he told. And Luke 18.9 tells us why he told the story. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee who would, you know, arguably have it kind of together religiously. And one was the tax collector who would be just the opposite. The Pharisee took, stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. You probably have never prayed that prayer out loud. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, because that makes me feel better. At least I'm not like them or even like this tax collector. And then he goes through his religious pedigree and what he does. I fast twice a week and give a tenth that all, of all that I get. Humble brag, humble brag, humble brag. Maybe not so humble. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that that man, rather than the other, went home that day justified. And then he says this, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Can you imagine doing your job that way? 
Like they're in a world where we build our resumes and we try to be humble about our successes. I read some years ago something that has stuck with me. Uh, it was a passage on servant leadership out of this scripture, and it says this, servant leaders humble themselves and wait for others to exalt them. In the context of self-promotion, those who lead in the way of Jesus don't have really anything to prove. Can you imagine doing your life like that? Paul says something similar about all this humble bragging or trying to make ourselves feel important through our religion. It's actually a very well-known part of the scriptures. The idea is that we can do all kinds of awesome things, but the source of those actions matters. If we don't have the right source, it's just a waste of time. You might have heard this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, there's that angel thing again. If I, sp- if I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, special knowledge, And if I have faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship so that I can boast but don't have love, I gain nothing. Henry Nouwen puts it this way, to love is to think and speak and act according to the spiritual knowledge that we are infinitely loved by God. This is the cosmic enoughness of Jesus. But a lot of us engage religion from our own sense of not enoughness. We said yes to Jesus maybe out of fear or anxiety. It is to live exactly the opposite of cosmic enoughness, for religion to be rebuilt around not enoughness. And it's easy to do this, actually, to ourselves and to the people around us to feel like there is something missing and that anxiety or lack is what engages us. But what would it be like to engage the world from sheer joy and gratitude? To be able to know that we know that we know that we are loved so deeply by God that the challenges and the, the, the sin and the brokenness of the world are caught up in that enoughness. Many of us are not living out of cosmic enoughness, but motivated by I'm not enoughness or I haven't done enoughness or I'm getting it wrongness in some way or another as we live our lives and as we parent and as we are married and as we live in families and as we do our jobs. And this is very deep in all of us. It's that sense of inadequacy is part of the human experience. I was trying to think of like in my life, how what's the point of application here? And the, the first thing I thought about is just the sense that I'm kind of proud of. I grew up on the farm. I grew up in the country with a kind of work ethic. We were poor, but we were working poor. And that makes you different than the people who are non-working poor, if you know what I mean. Like that sense of productivity, the sense of responsibility, the things that are all honorable and good sort of drove our family narrative. At least we weren't like those other people. Now, we would never have said it like that Pharisee praying to God. At least we're not like those other people who don't work. But that's that's what we lived. That's what we embodied. And there is nothing wrong with hard work, is there? It's actually a really good thing. 
There's nothing wrong with that narrative of needing to contribute to the world. But there is a downside. That sense that our productivity will save us, that somehow that we can work hard enough, that we will be enough, it, it, it never is. And so there's a downside to our, my family narrative, which is that we're kind of workaholics and don't know who we are outside of work. Maybe you can relate to that. Like, it's part of our identity that, that isn't fully enough because it isn't grounded in Christ's enoughness. And we do this in all kinds of ways. Some of us were told that we weren't worth much. And no matter what we've done throughout our lives, we've been trying to fill that void of what was told to us, when what we simply need to know is that what we were told is a lie. Some of us are still trying to fill some gap of inadequacy in our lives. And I think Paul would say, no matter how much religious jargon you put around it, no matter how spiritual it sounds, it will never get you there. But something powerful happens Something transforming happens when we realize that in Christ we have nothing left to prove. Rather than tapping into our own well of inadequacy, we tap into the deep well that is Christ. And so as uh, we come to communion today, I'm going to just kind of create a moment here. I want to invite you to maybe close your eyes and reflect as as you think about how maybe you have been pressured in some way from the outside to somehow live less than uh, the just absolute trust in the sufficiency of Christ. As we come to communion today in just a moment, we want to come ready to receive Christ's fullness. And so would you reflect with me as we reflect in prayer together? You might ask yourself, how are you still being motivated by a sense that it's not enough? That you aren't enough or there's something left to be done or something left to accomplish? How is inadequacy part of your engagement with this world, engagement with other people? How is not enoughness tied up into your faith? Where do you catch yourself having to prove yourself or justify yourself? Or puff yourself up in order to feel worthy. Who was it that told you? Maybe in words or in actions that you, you just didn't have what it takes, that you're not worthy of love, that you need to do something to be valued.
What do you think Jesus would say to that person or those people who told you things that weren't true? And finally, what would it look like to let go of all of that and simply accept as the starting point, the point of engagement, God's love for you in Christ Jesus? Nothing to make up for, but to hand over your sin and brokenness to the one who can hold it all and put it all back together. Nothing to prove because Christ has proved God's love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. What would it look like to engage every encounter in life from that place of Christ's enoughness? To claim the words of the hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. God, we confess that we struggle to trust and we will do a lot of things to try to prove our worth. And so we lay all that down before you, ready to receive something better the cosmic love of a God who created us and who redeems us. The story that is truer than the one we often tell, the story of Christ's sufficiency and supremacy over all things. We come to communion this morning ready to receive so that our starting point for this week might be gratitude living out of the overflow of your goodness and settling for nothing less. God, the prayer of our hearts today is Christ is enough. And we come again and again until we remember, until it is our lived reality. And so we pray it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's join in the words on the screen, which are the great thanksgiving. It is our starting point, our point of engagement with our week to say uh, uh, that Christ is enough and to tell this story of his redemption. So the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. I agree with you. It is right. And a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church. You delivered us from slavery to sin and death and made with us a new covenant by water and the spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, Jesus took bread. He blessed it and broke it, gave it to his disciples. 
and said, take eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup again, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering to us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. I invite those who are coming to serve forward as we pray together. Let's pray. God, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and cup? May they be for us an experience of the body and blood of Christ that we might be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. And we feast together then at the great heavenly banquet. Through your son, Jesus Christ, with your Holy Spirit and your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. The invitation we believe to communion is from Christ himself. It is Christ, our Lord, who sets this table and invites you not only to this meal, but into the fullness of life that he intends for you. And this is the offer that we feel like that we extend, that we are part of the great welcome mat that is the grace of of God through Christ. And so you are more than welcome to come to communion. And uh, so you'll come these two sections these two sections and these two, you'll go out the right side of those two sections and then go back the left. And uh, if you have an offering, bring that and drop that into the basket before you come to communion and then have your hands open ready to receive. And they'll place the bread into your hands and you'll take it and dip it into the cup and then receive it. Uh, if you'd like to be anointed with oil, uh, we have folks uh, at each of those stations who will anoint you with the sign of the cross on your forehead as a sign of the enoughness of Christ over you. And that's a, just a, there's no magic to that. Uh, that's just a way of claiming that, to physically, sacramentally, in a way, feel that. And then if you need gluten-free elements, we have those here at the front, and you can just come right up as you, as you uh, get close to the front and, and receive those. And so the table has been set. All that has needed to be accomplished has been accomplished. All that is left is for us to come and gratefully receive and then engage Christ and our world out of that place of enoughness. And so as you come, you might just simply say, maybe out loud or maybe to yourself before you receive these words, Christ is enough and trust that it is true as you come. Would you come?